If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you send and receive calls and texts from your new business phone number. That way you can run your business from anywhere and respond to clients quickly with Grasshopper's mobile apps. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com films to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com films. Today on the NFL Films Podcast. We take a long look at John Randall of Football Life with the producers of the film, Bob Angelo and Neil Zender. We will talk to John Randall himself, Hall of Fame defensive tackle for the Minnesota Vikings. And we'll also talk even more in depth with Bob Angelo, an NFL Films Hall of Famer after 43 seasons coming to the end of his remarkable career. And we're going to hear all about it. A tremendous episode of the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Welcome aboard, everyone. It's nice to start the show with such a, 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 a soulful Sam Spence NFL Films original. Hi, Neil. Hi, Keith. Hi, Ange. Hello. Hi, Paul. Hello, Keith. You won't find a bigger fan of NFL Films music than these two guys. Certainly not Neil Zender. Nothing better than Sam Spence. Paul. Yes, Keith. I have a question. Yes. Who is John Randall? Well, I know who John Randall is. I know he's a football Hall of Famer. I didn't know anything much more beyond that. I knew a little more about him, but not, not nearly what I know now after watching this incredible film this guy, these guys put together. I wouldn't have known, let me start here, I wouldn't have known he was a guy that was worthy of a football life film and uh, an extended exploration of his life, both on and off of the football field. But Bob Angelo, you'll hear us call him Ange for the rest of this podcast, so don't let that throw you. Bob, you certainly knew that uh, John was somebody that was worth taking a long, hard look at. Why was that? How did you know John's story so well? Hold that thought before you can even answer the question. Just a little more context. We are in the presence of, of, of NFL Films greatness today, Paul. We have 63 seasons of NFL Films experience with us today. Neil Zender, coordinating producer at NFL Films, um, has been here 20 years. And the great, legendary Bob Angelo, who, if you watch NFL football, now this is, you see... The NFL films guys, when you're watching the broadcast of a game, wear special blue vests. That's how you know it's an NFL films guy and not the guy shooting the game for the network. Now, Ange is the guy in a blue vest who also wears sleeveless shirts almost every weekend, especially when he's in the Dome in Minnesota. He's flexing right now. You see his guns blazing in stadiums across America, in your TV, on your TV screen, in your living room for decades. Ange is one of the greatest cinematographers and producers uh, we've ever had in NFL films. And this is his final season. So now, after that long parenthetical, answer the question. Who better to tell us why John Randall was worth this story? Ange? John Randall is the only Interior lineman, by that I mean a nose tackle or a defensive tackle, 
to be in the top 10 in sacks for a career. In fact, if you look at those numbers, I think he's the only pure interior lineman in the top 25. Ironically, the closest is a former teammate, Henry Thomas, a guy who did a lot of the dirty work so that John could succeed as a pass rusher. That and the fact that John Randall is one of the most entertaining wires that NFL Films has ever did, so much so that we wired him five different times, each one better than the one before. And then, as Neil will point out, as rags-to-riches stories go, none surpasses John. John grew up in poverty that none of us have ever heard of and rose from that to the highest pinnacle in the National Football League. A guy who never won a championship, never on a championship team, but nonetheless was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in his second year. Just to give everyone a reminder of who John Randall is, this is the sounds of one of the greatest wires in NFL films history. In the NFL, you're playing against a bunch of guys who are crazy. Most of the guys, though, are pretending to be crazy. Now, Johnny, you didn't leave a game playing against him thinking, is this guy pretending? Red Rover, Red Rover, let the mother come on over. If you didn't know him, and you just watched him or heard him play, you'd swear this guy's nuts. Literally bonafide, certifiable nuts. I hated playing against John Randall. You had to listen to him psychologically talking you down, telling you he's you know, going to sack you and he's going to do his WWE walk over the top of you. John Randall, I'm sure, had something to say to Brett Favre. <laughs> what the heck is that? Favre is being chased by Randall. just kind of added to the aura of of John Randall. So that's Chris Carter talking about John Randall being crazy on the field and his former, a former assistant on that Vikings team of the nineties, Brian Billick, as well as the great Brett Favre, Randall's number one rival talking about Randall on the field. So Neil, uh, Randall played for the Vikings. He played for the Seahawks. We know you knew that, you being a Seahawk fan. But when you do a dive like this into a guy, what's something you didn't know about John Randall that started to emerge when you watch five wires worth of three-plus hours on the field and do the paper research? What, what were some things that started to emerge to you in the early stages of researching this film? The first thing that jumped out to me was that this this guy's life can't be real. This is a fairy tale. Like This is something that if a Hollywood screenwriter wrote it up, you would say, this is, t- this is too far-fetched to be a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie or whatever. You just, like, this stuff doesn't happen in real life. But it does, and it did. And it happened in his life. And he, you know, Ange mentioned rags to riches. Like, this is the greatest rags to riches story in the history of the NFL. And, and that was a story that people needed to hear. You know, what was your first experience working with John on this project? Uh, we went out to uh, his hometown in Mumford, Texas, to uh, film the B-roll for the open and close. 
and our plan was to basically have bookends for the film where the start of the film would be John walking around the ruins or what was left of the shack that he grew up in and then sort of reminiscing on his whole life and how he started off that from there and where he went from there in such an improbable journey and then ending with him at the end of the film uh, walking out of that field. All that's, all that's left of it is a, is a field. It looks like... Uh, you know, American Gothic or something out of the the stereotype of the heartland or whatever, big, big, uh, long, waving grass in the wind. Uh, yeah, I've never been to Mumford. I mean, what's does it look like Manhattan? Does it look like uh, Philadelphia? What's it look like? Uh, Mumford looks like the kind of place where the population's about 25, including livestock. I mean, there's a couple of different houses. There's a gravel road. There used to be a Collier store, uh, which is just like the, the one-stop grocery store that was there. And the Collier store's gone now. But I mean, just to give you an example, when John and his brothers were growing up, they didn't have a car. The nearest like town with the high school was 20 miles away. So I mean, literally what they would do, when a car would drive by, that would be an event. And they would sit in, and, and there's a train tracks there too, and trains would rumble, but freight trains would rumble by all the time. And John and his brothers would sit and just watch the cars and watch the trains and wondering like, where are they going? Where are they coming from and where are they going? And their, their whole world was based on how far they could walk. You went to Mumford with a plan. You knew in your head the footage that you had of him as a player, but you needed to capture this place. And you mentioned the bookends at the beginning and the end of the film. Tell us about your plan for the very last shot of the film. We wanted to sort of shoot the start of, I mean, light filming wise is always the best at sunrise or sunset. That's when you get golden hour. And blue hours, what's right before and after golden hour. So we wanted to film him uh, at the start of the film, blue hour, uh, the golden hour sunrise, like right walking through the field because the light would be the best. You have the most dramatic high contrast lighting. And then we wanted the end of the film to be sunset and him walking off into, sun, into the sunset and try to make it. The goal going in was to make it mat, match as closely as possible the uh, last shot of the open to the football life credits. We wanted it to sort of, you know, reverberate or, or subconsciously strike a chord in your head that was somewhat similar to that. Doesn't know, it didn't completely work out that way, but we wound up with something that was uh, even better. This film really lives in this unique creative space. I mean, it's, it's in some ways, like, like many of our shows, it's a follow doc. I mean, John, Bob's been following John for years. We've been miking him up. We followed him during the course of this production, but it also has some Hollywood elements in terms of a very particular, very unique piece of staging that became the centerpiece uh, of John's story and the presentation of John's story. Neil, I wanted you to just kind of talk through, describe what that set was and kind of what the origin story of the set was. Well, when we started researching John's life, the first thing we we figured out was the the definitive thing and the thing that shaped him was how he grew up. He grew up in a 20 by 20 foot shack in uh, rural Texas. And it, it was a degree of poverty to which none of us can really imagine or comprehend. And instead of just sort of having him talk about it, the shack wasn't there anymore. It had been gone for almost uh, two decades. Uh, we had no real way to show it except for stills. We wanted to take John back in that world so that it was real. And we wanted to show viewers what it was like to be him and where he came from and how he made it. And we started brainstorming different ways to do it. Should we go find a similar shack? Should we shoot in one? And at some point, somebody said, why don't we just build it? So, you know, it was like Field of Dreams. We went out and we uh, had Steve Pennypacker, who was a prop guy, just drew up plans, designed a shack. Uh, Bob reached out to John and said, we want to do this. And then 
what Bob did is he basically uh, went through with John every little detail of what was in that shack. We got pictures and recreated things from pictures. We used the exact same wallpapering uh, or the same wood paneling on the walls. Like we, we matched everything we possibly could to be as real as possible so that he would feel like he's, he was going back in time and experiencing uh, what his childhood was like. You wanted to put John in the physical space to try and rekindle the emotions and the, and the headspace he was in when he grew up in it. What are the advantages of that as a storyteller? Why is that a, a technique that you've adopted? Well, the first thing is with an interview subject, the second they walk into the set and see that it's not just a hotel room and it's not just a natural background or it's not just a curtain behind them, it says this is different and that we're taking your story seriously and we're, we're, we're taking it to a level that nobody else has ever taken it before. And you get the subject's respect right away the second that you do that. So here's the moment when John walks onto the set for the first time. Um, and we'll come back and talk about this because it, it's an incredibly interesting moment and one that we debated intensely whether we should include it in the film. Even a recreation on a soundstage brings back memories. Wow. And that's the television band. It's about the size of the TV we had. Yeah, and we had a lamp similar to this, too. I'm sorry. Oh I'm sorry. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, I get emotional. Okay. So, just to paint a picture for for what we just heard. That was John Randall walking onto the NFL film soundstage, which had been transformed into this replica of the interior of this 20 by 20 shack that he grew up in. And he walks out there with Neil Zender, the producer of the film. Um, and they walked out together and it was something that we almost decided the day before. Maybe we should just get a camera. And, and capture his reaction when he sees the set for the first time, just in case there's an emotional reaction. And, and that's the way it went down. I'm, I'm going to be very curious when we talk to John later what his reaction is um, to seeing that scene play out in the film itself. But, Neil, I'd like to get into a little deeper about, you know, our process of how we arrived at using it in the film and, and the debate we had and, and, and the hesitation we had about using it. Uh, well, first, n number one, the reason the moment happened was because we wanted to be authentic. So NFL Films is in South Jersey, 20 minutes from Philadelphia. John was in town for the NFL draft. So we just said, why don't you come over to NFL Films and look at the set because we want to make sure that it's real and that it's authentic. And that way we've got another two days before the interview. We can go ahead and make any corrections so that it's authentic and real to you. And so John walked in, uh, you know, cause suggested, why don't we just have a camera there? You never know what's going to happen. And he walked in and he reacted uh, very emotionally to that. And it was a really powerful moment. Creatively, uh, the question we had about is, well, should we put this film in th this moment in or not? Because it's a real meta thing. Like now we're showing you uh, that this is a film and part of it is a little artificial. Is this something that we want to show people? Do we want to, you want to keep people always in the moment of him being in that shack? Or do we want to step back and, and, hey, this is a set and this is how he reacts to it. And this is John Randall's reaction to us 
making a film about them. Yeah, the, the film nerd's term for it is breaking the fourth wall, right? We're, right. we're now letting you in on the artifice of what, of what the film is, which was, which was not the original intent at all. But the great irony is it almost made the whole thing more real in a way. Getting John's reaction to it not only, to me, validates what you created in terms of the authenticity you mentioned, but it also demonstrates another level of him as a person and what it stirred up in him was not something, uh, even in an interview, you, sometimes you'll ramp into an emotion, but th there's such a purity in how he reacts to that. And, and seeing it unfold, I think, really tells you a lot about him as much as, you know, as much as any wirebite could. And he related it to events in his professional career. Living in a dorm room with Eddie McDaniel reminded him of sleeping in the same bed with his two older brothers, two large men by the time they were in high school, with little John, the youngest brother in the middle, opening the refrigerator and seeing what little there was in there. And, you know, and likening that to Robert Smith saying, what is that? As he looks at a plate, a training camp, and it's just the same meal John used to eat when he was 12 years old because that's what his mother left in the refrigerator. That's all there was to eat that night. The shoes, the, uh, the water bucket where he took a bath, all those, those details were the things that John looked at. And as Neil said, he had great respect for the fact that we went to a lot of time and trouble to reproduce this, to make it authentic and to give John the context to react. And he did. And it should be noted, and correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, I remember talking to you about this. It's not as though there's great documentary evidence of what this was. You guys had very limited resources in terms of what your inspiration was in, in, in order to kind of glean the details to put it together. And that's what was great about John is like every time we, I mean, Andrew would send him 10 text messages a day, messages a day or call him on the phone. Hey, what was, what, was the, what was the paneling on the wall like? What kind of TV set did you have? How big was it? Was it black and white or was it color? Like, like all sorts of details. What color should the stove be? We send him, Ange would text him, you know, pictures of different stoves and say, what's the right type of stove? I mean, like we wanted to hit every single detail so that it could be as real as possible. The wash tub was the one that got him. The wash right. tub that yeah. back in that day was used for animals. And that's what John and his brother bathed in. Let's listen to the John talk about the tub, which in, in, on the set, Ange and Neil had, had found, and, and, and Penny Packer, the props guy, had found a tub that was a very close to what John actually bathed in as a child. I don't like taking baths now. It reminds me of sitting in that tub. For us, it was a normal way of life. When I went to a store, I saw one of the tubs, and I'm like looking at it, and it was like something that people use for, for animals. That's what we had in the house. That's something that animals use. At what point did you realize, Neil, that like we needed to somehow find a way to transport the audience into this world that he grew up in because it is so extreme? Uh, every story, or not every story, but a lot of football NFL players have a rags to riches story. But the more we researched John Randall, we could see like this was the rags to riches story of all rags to riches story. And he had all the elements of, if you're a filmmaker or a storyteller or a mythologist, all the elements of the hero's journey. Here's somebody like Luke Skywalker, who's in the middle of nowhere, who nobody thinks is important in any sort of a ways, and an insignificant person who's in a difficult uh, family situation, whose father largely abandoned him and mis mistreated him, and nobody who nobody really believes in. 
And then his older brother sets an example for him that he can achieve to do something. And then like a lot of heroes in a hero's journey, first they get the call to go do something great and they turn it down. Like John Randall figured out in high school he was a good football player, but he didn't want to do the work. He wanted to be a garbage man, as he talks about in our film. So being a garbage man would be great. I can be home at 2 o'clock. I can sit in the porch. I can, I can drink beer. Like, what's better than that? I got a secure job. Like, that's all I want out of life. I used to see these garbage men working. Work for the city. Got city benefits. That's going to be my job. I'm going to be a garbage man. Start working by 6, be done by noon, drink some cold beer. I got made in shade. So it was the hero's journey on paper. It was the hero's journey revealed in the interview. But what you couldn't see in that clip, which you'd see in the film, is this remarkable storytelling shot of John driving down the street. Was it in in Mumford? And he's he's actually watching garbage men work uh, on the street as, as you guys captured it. I wanted to just talk about your shoot plan with John. What was your plan to capture the hero's journey on location with John out in the world? Well, first off, the, the great thing is that like John wanted his story to be told. And so when we said to him, we want, we want you to do these things and it will take time to do these things. He was sure, whatever, however much time you need. So we, we were able to shoot things because he would let us shoot them. And we got to thank the, you know, the, the city of Hearn because like we were there, I can't remember what day it was, a Tuesday or a Wednesday of the week. Like they, they're not picking up trash in Mumford on Tuesday. But we called them and said, will you send a trash garbage truck out to Mumford, you know, 30 minutes from Hearn, so we can, and they sent, they sent a trash truck up and started picking up trash, and people started rolling their trash out of the end of the driveways because they wanted John Randall's story to be told. So in a, in a couple minutes, we're going to talk to John. Um, but, Ange, I'm curious, um, you know, what, what do you expect his reaction to be? What, you know, what are you hoping to hear from John, knowing him all these years after having finally made the film that, that tells the story of his life? John, in spite of his outgoing nature on the football field and that character that he played, has a very deep strain of humility. He grew up poor. He had to remind himself, even when he was a pro bowler, that I'm playing pro football instead of picking cotton. I am doing this instead of driving a garbage truck, and I'm getting paid for it. I think John's going to love what we did for his life because it's accurate. We didn't have to make this stuff up. John lived it. It's real. And John appreciated the time and trouble we went to to reproduce his home, the 20 by 20 shack that no longer exists. All right, let's, uh, let's talk to John. Hey, John, this is Keith Cosrow, and I'm with Paul Camerata, and uh, we host the NFL Films podcast, and we are with the guys who made your film, your friend Bob Angelo and Neil Sender. Okay, great. We are really excited to have you on to talk about the film and uh, to get your reaction to your own Football Life episode. What'd you think? That was unbelievable. I'm... Uh little bit like nervous because I'm, I didn't think my life was that, you know, I didn't think it was that glamorous that somebody would want to do a story about it. You're being modest, John. <laughs> well, I just, you know, that's just the way I am. Well, what did we? Uh, what did the guys screw up? That, that's the that's the important question here. What did what did Ange and Neil leave out? What did they miss? Ah, uh, 
Not that I don't drink. I don't think they missed anything. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. I thought you might want us to have said that, hey, I could play the run, too. I wasn't one-dimensional. I never came off the field. <laughs> you know what? Uh, you could say that, but, um, you know, John Turley always said play the run on the way to the quarterback. So I played it. I just played it on, on the way to the quarterback. 137 and a half times. Yes, sir. John, we were talking before about you know, the character that you were on the field that who became legendary and famous and, and who intimidated and, and, and made players laugh alike. And, you know, I want to play something for you that didn't make the film. This is your old teammate Chris Carter describing you on the field. Oh, what the f*** do? Touch me? He had some type of rule that if you touched his uniform or his body that it zapped him of his power. Don't you touch me, man. Don't you touch me, man. Don't you touch me, man. You could talk to him, but you could not make physical contact with him. I'm glad we're, we're on the same team. <laughs> so, um, John, is that real? Does that, I mean, first of all, you'll have to explain to us what that was about. And, and second of all, get into... To what extent this character you were on the field was invented and to what extent this was just you, you know, being, being you on the field? Oh, my God. Um, made it for who I had to, to be on the football field. I'm so far from that person. Uh, I'm more of a friendly, jovial, you know, just kind of a feel-good guy, but to be the player that I knew I had to be on the football field, it, it involved a lot. And uh, But, you know, I was fortunate enough to have uh, players around me who helped mold me into becoming the, the player I had to be. I mean, from the, the, the the Jack Del Rio, the, uh, the, the, the John Turley was the one who kind of taught us about being, we called it being a sacred cow. Gus, he was such such a, a unique coach that he came in one day, he goes, guys, get a load of this. This is what I just read. There's this country. And, you know, he's kind of animated when he goes, there's this country. I don't know where it's at, but there's these cows that are just walking down the street and <laughs> these people are starving and they can't even touch these cows. He goes, but they're starving. They're, he goes, some of them are probably eating berries and there's these sacred cows just walking down the street. And he goes, that's how we got to see ourselves. We are sacred cows and no one, I mean no one, not even a teammate can touch you. Because you got to be sacred cows when you get on that field. Remember that. So, you know, we'd be walking around, and all of a sudden, John Tilling was touching your chest. And, you know, he's like, hey, and he goes, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to be able to touch you. You are a sacred cow. And so we started going by that, you know, believing that, saying, hey, we're sacred cows. And it, came, it became a mindset. 
that on Sunday morning before the game, do not let anybody touch you. John, there's a great thread throughout this whole film. The the strategy the guys used of recreating your childhood home uh, is obviously a big part of the film. Just want to ask a couple questions about that. This is this is 2017. What when's the last time you were in that structure? Oh God, last time I went there was in uh, was in like uh, 1997. Last time I, I was in it. So it's been a while. So what was it like walking back into it? As, as much as as much as possible when you came to uh, came here to NFL Films and walked out on our on our stage. There's a, there is a clip of it in the show, but kind of kind of bring me back to walking through that door and seeing that home. It felt like a time war. I mean, I, I never really thought that that was a possibility. You know, Bob was talking about, hey, you know what, we're gonna redo this, and I'm like, okay, yeah, it's gonna be a, a pop up tent. We have a couple pictures on the wall, and you know that they were going to attempt to do it. But man, it was realistic. I mean, it it caught me for a moment, moment because like going back in the time when you know the, that that house was, as soon as you walked in there, it was warm. It was very humid in there. Um, the fan in the window, uh, the, the confined quarters, uh, the, the just how uncomfortable it was. And, uh, you know, that little small television, uh, just so realistic. Were you surprised to see that um, Neil and Bob used that moment in the film when you walked in with Neil and saw the set for the first time, the recreation of the house? Because it's something we debated for a long time here, whether, whether we should use it in the film about you. When I saw it, man, it just, God, it just, it, it caught me and just all those memories when I was a kid it all came rushing back. One of the things when we were shooting that you introduced me to that didn't make the film, maybe you can tell people about, because I learned it from you and now I do it all the time. Tell everybody about how you, li- how you like to drink Coke with peanuts. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, my God. That, that, see, that, for, I mean, where I grew up, uh, on a Saturday, these, these people would, like, go to this little Caillou store and they would get all kind of dressed up, and to top it off, criminal uh, crim was to get a would get a soda uh, in a bottle and take the peanuts, put the peanuts in that soda, and that was kind of like a almost like a root beer float or like champagne to them, and they would sit there, man, and they would do that, and I was just like, wow. You know, it was kind of like the last little missing piece for a Saturday evening. You got to put that on the menu at Randall's, John. You got to get the the Coke with peanuts on there, so so folks can can experience it for themselves. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm to drive in customers, not drive away customers. It's, it's, I think it tastes pretty good. Hey, I, I believe you. I, I I know. It, it, but you know what? It's not for everybody. <laughs> John, did you know we captured you doing a swim move on a customer at Randall's? We were upstairs watching you walk through the restaurant, tracking you, and you came to a table, and you did a swim with your right arm and got to the quarterback or the kitchen. Well, well you know what? That goes back to what John Tilly was, was 
know, he said pass rushing is something that you have to treat it as second nature. You have to be treated to the point where rushing a quarterback is like, like, it's like you breathing or walking. You got to do that. To be successful at it, you got to create that image. And so that's the way I envision it. So it became second nature. And, uh, you know, he used to tell us that, you know, he go, a businessman takes home his briefcase, takes home his files. He goes, you've got to take home your pass rush. It became this second nature. You know, John, talking about pass rushing, uh, something that we didn't know to ask you when we were did the interview for the film, but from going through every game that you played that, that we picked up on, is in so many games, you wouldn't do anything first quarter, wouldn't do anything second quarter, either late in the second quarter, early in the third quarter, you'd beat a guy. And then in like the next 12 or 15 snaps, you'd beat him in like 11 snaps. And if you didn't sack the quarterback, you'd break up the play. What, what sort of happened that once you beat a guy once, it meant you were going to beat him eight or nine times? in the next couple of plays. And what, what was going on there? That is about uh, that old country boy in me, you know, was like all, all I'm asking for is an opening, an inch. Just give me a chance. If I get a chance and I see something, because when I, when I play, it's like I'm still that kid from Monkey, Texas, from that small town, and, you know, there was a little doubt in me. And, and all of a sudden, as the game, you know, starts to go on, and all of a sudden I start to get more and more confident in myself and my, my play, it all kind of comes out like, yeah, you know what? You can do this. You can do this. And first up is you're playing. Yes, you're playing in the National Football League. Now you want to you 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 start making plays. And once you start making plays, you all of a sudden say, all right, now I can be a big, I can be a factor, and I saw myself as to being a factor in the game, you know. And and all of a sudden, as the game goes on, the guy, my opponent, seems to get tired. I feel stronger as the game goes on. And uh, by that fourth quarter, when most guys are worn out, I'm just feeling more confident, feeling better, and just getting stronger. John, I I'm not sure. In the history of the NFL, there was ever a better guy to mic up than you. And we were talking before, and I, we think Ange and the gang mic'd you up five times in your career. And I, I'm curious if you were one of the guys, I think there's two ways people can go with being mic'd up. One type of guy is aware of it and has a hard time forgetting that he's mic'd up. And, and the other type yeah. of guy never even knows it and just totally forgets about yeah. it. Which type oh, yeah. are you? I'm the, I'm the one who all of a sudden says, because, I mean, the first time I was mic'd up, I was trying to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm mic'd up. I got to be careful what I'm saying. I just want to – I was I was trying, I was almost like too conscious about the mic. And then all of a sudden, I, it, it dawned on me. I go, you know what? I go, just like as if I'm, I'm in my backyard, I'm in somebody else's backyard, I go, I can't worry about that mic. I got to go out here and play the way I play. I want to play you. I mean, it's it's just fun to 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 get your reaction now. Like, let's spend thirty seconds and listen listen to you on the field, and then and then have you. You know, I want to hear your reaction now to hearing yourself back in the day. Regulator, mount up. 
We're coming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a country boy. I ain't used to all these bright lights over here, oh, sir. You're not, you're not used to being in front of all these people. Yes, sir. You're shy, is that what it is? Correct, sir. Hey, I've worked you before, John. I know how you talk out there. You enjoy listening to it now? Did you when you watch the show and you see all these clips together in one place? I'm a little I'm a little bit embarrassed because when when like I got said when I played, I had to go into this I had almost like like being an actor, you have to go into that zone or into that get into that character to be that that guy, be that person. And I'm so I'm a little bit embarrassed because you know, it's it's me, but I'm like, yeah, it's me, but it's really not me because, yeah, you know, that's just a different character. John, the, the, we talked about the portion of the film about your upbringing and your, and your back story uh, where you grew up in Mumford. One of the other really powerful portions, obviously, comes later in the film, the story of your son. And I'm just curious how he's doing today. Oh, well, he's doing well. He's doing he's doing really well. Um, he's he's now 13. Makes me proud. To see, you know, as how I battled on the football field, and and to turn around and see the battles that he's gone through to be here on this planet Earth, and uh, you know, it, it's just uh, it just shows me how tough of a person he is, and uh, it just makes it all worthwhile to be here and to see him and and see everything that he's gone through. To me. He's the Hall of Famer in my eyes. Like father, like son, John. Yes. John, uh, I hope I didn't put Candace through too much in that interview. I, uh, I, I wanted her to walk us through it, and she did. And she got to that point where I, I was pretty sure she'd, she drained all the emotion out. And uh, I, I hope she enjoyed reliving that part. Now that Jonathan is here and healthy and enjoying his teenage years, she can look back on it and think, wow, my husband really was there for me and my and my son. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was a tough time for us because you never want to see your child go through something like that. And uh, if it, 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 anything, it strengthened our family bond and it just made us overall just a stronger family. But, you know, we, we weathered through it and we made it. And uh, it's something that we would, like I said, we'd never forget. And, uh, but it's just, man, it's just, it's just, wow, it's an emotional time. Well, John, thank you for everything you've done for NFL Films over the years and, and taking a few minutes to talk about the film with us today. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care, Johnny. All right. Bye. The Hall of Famer, John Randall, taking some time with us on the NFL Films Podcast. Guys, Neil, Bob, are you uh, relieved, happy to hear uh, the big man's reaction to the film? I had a feeling he would like it. We, Neil drew up a great outline. John gave us a tremendously candid interview. Everyone who talked about John spoke glowingly of him, but... His opponents also travel to the dark side. So we, it's a pretty complete picture of one of the most unique 
football players I've ever met in 43 years in this business. I just think it's it's amazing and a great experience to tell a story uh, of of somebody who sends a message to everybody that no matter what situation you're in, if you work hard and you apply yourself, you can be successful and you can make it. And John made it. His older brother made it. Like, And if he can make it, anybody can. Let's sneak in a plug for our friends at Grasshopper before we move on. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or even if you have a side gig, let me introduce you to Grasshopper and the entrepreneur's phone system. Grasshopper lets you run your business from your cell phone. Something you might want to do after retiring in a couple months. While keeping your business and personal lives separate, choose from their huge inventory of local toll-free or vanity toll-free numbers. Simply forward your new number to your mobile phone and start taking calls immediately. Whether you're at an office, in your car, or out shopping for the holidays, Grasshopper's iPhone and Android apps help you stay connected to your customers. Not to mention, you can send and receive calls and texts from your business phone number, set up multiple extensions for everyone on your team, get your voicemails transcribed and emailed to you, work from anywhere with call forwarding when you're out on the road, Neil. Make and receive calls from your computer via the desktop app and even utilize Wi-Fi calling. Better yet, Grasshopper offers an easy and instant setup and 24-7 customer support, all without any long-term contracts. Grasshopper, sign up today. Go to grasshopper.com slash films to get $20 off your first month. That's grasshopper.com slash films. There's a lot of unique aspects of this film. Uh, we've talked about a few of them here today, but one of them, Ange, is your role on it. And I want to start out kind of giving a little backstory on, on all of our roles here. So we're all called producers. It's kind of a misnomer, right, Keith, relative to the rest of the, indus the industry that does what we do? Yeah, there's, they have a terrible term for what we do now. What is it? For what a lot of us do. It's oh, predator. Predator, right. What a terrible word. I mean, it's a great movie. I mean, if we all looked like the, the Predator in the, in the Schwarzenegger movie, that would be cool. But Predator is a mashup of the words producer-editor, which is what originally, in the original construct of NFL films, a producer was essentially an editor-writer, uh, you know, and who would sometimes go out and direct the rare features and documentaries we did, right, Ange? But it, True and correct. My first business card said writer-editor. And at some point, that m just kind of morphed into producer and they, so this place may have invented the Predator. That's right. Predator 1.0. Yeah. So then, like, about the time we came here, like, people would say, what are you? And you'd say a producer. And, like, our, our job description didn't really match what other producers in the industry were doing, which was a lot more field producing and, and directing. Now, as time's gone on, we've all become much more proficient directors. And, you know, we're doing much more documentary work now. So now we have... 85 producers of various um, ages and, and experience working here during the season, 60 full time. And they write and they edit and they direct. Uh, only one of them shoots Bob Angelo, and that's you from the from the Steve Sable tradition. He was a, he was a cameraman turned producer, writer, editor, director, did it all. Uh, you're the only one left who does it. And so Keith described Bob's role on Sundays. Um, shooting action at games, shooting sync sound, shooting wires. Uh, obviously, that extends to the interviews. You, you, you do it all. But what, what's interesting to me and what, 
which I which we know, but hopefully you can explain is what advantage has that given you over the years in being a storyteller, being the guy who is going to hold the camera, is going to talk to the talent, and also is going to be putting the piece together back after the material has been captured? Well, it helps because I also played quarterback in high school and was recruited to play quarterback in college. What college? Quite a few, but uh, the, the biggest would have been Penn State back in 19... Uh, as my, the end of my junior year, I got a phone call and I... Uh, Really upset my high school coach when I uh, told Mr. Paterno I really didn't want to play. Wait, wait. Did he not want to turn you into a linebacker? No, I, I only weighed 147 pounds ah. as a junior. And he laughed at me on the phone and said, uh, we have managers your we have managers your size in that classic voice of his. But um, I didn't want to play college football. I had no interest. Hmm. But However, you, but I did like professional football. And I had been watching NFL film stuff willingly. Ever since it's, it came on the air in 1964 and 65. And by the time I finished grad school at Northwestern, I had written Steve Sable a pile of letters and really wanted to work here. But long story short, to answer your question, I came here um, with background as a football player and uh, a journalism degree, a broadcast journalism degree and some experience and a little bit of experience shooting a camera. When I got here, as you said, Steve Sable shot, and all of the producers who were going places, all of the producers who basically held sway around NFL films at 230 13th Street, all shot. I said, well, I played high school quarterback. I know what's going on on a football field. I can do this, too. I wanted to follow the action around the football field and move around a football field to put myself in the best position to capture the action. How did I know where that was? Because I played. I could sense when teams had to throw the ball and when I had to be downfield as opposed to behind the line of scrimmage, knowing that this defense is kicking the crap out of this offense. Everything's coming this way. And I got pretty good at predicting that right away, as did the other guys who were doing the same thing as me. Now, I'm the only guy still doing that simply because I enjoy that more than anything else that I do here and always have, other than... Um, producing live-to-tape television or live television or directing live TV. So you were never going to put the camera down? Well, at the end of this season will be my last. But uh, no, I, I, and, and I always felt so long as I can still do it to the level that satisfies my standards, I'll keep doing it. And I've kept myself in shape over the years to make that, make that possible and really enjoyed being out there. And these days when I walk on a football field, I'm actually now talking to the kids of the guys I shot the first time around. My favorite example of that is is um, Channing Crowder with the Miami Dolphins. Now, he's not there anymore, but he was a linebacker, and I looked at the nameplate on his jersey, looked at it inside his helmet, said, might be. I said, is your dad Randy? And he looked at me and said, who's asking? And I said, we failed our swimming test together at Penn State. Oh, my old man still can't swim. And, and, and it's, it's moments like that, that that make this whole thing worthwhile for me. It, it should be stated that along the way, I think Ange invented what we like to call, you know, the sideline sync crew, um, which in NFL films parlance, you often see sound bites um, when you see NFL films game packages uh, from the sideline. Coaches talking X's and O's to players, players getting congratulated after touchdowns, and, of course, the iconic touchdown reaction shot where you see everyone on the sideline explode into celebration after a big touchdown. 
Ange, I, I think, is the person most responsible. Neil, would you agree with this for Absolutely. creating what that was? And it was so much. He was editing. He had played football. So he was the perfect person to go out there and know here are the shots you really need to pro to properly tell the story and capture every part of what's happening on the football field. Ange said to me once, and I, I'm sure we've all learned lessons from him because we've, you, you, you taught us what we know. And he said, and I didn't know what this even meant at the time. The film isn't just the action shots. It's the cutaways that make the film. That's what enable you to tell the story you're trying to tell. And again, I didn't even know what that meant. And, and I, I hope I've learned a little bit, but I mean, that, it's that kind of wisdom. I think that speaks to needing to know where to find those shots. But it's also the, the artistry in it. Like, Ange has so many, sh like, Ange, you talked a lot about knowing the action, but they're the, the shots that have nothing to do with the actual action at all. My favorite Ange shot is the shot through the referee, through the side judges, like, legs of the snap, where it's just locked off, and all you see is the snap, the lines collide together, and the ball goes out of the frame. And every time, every time that shot gets shot, it gets stuck in inside the NFL that week, and it gets used. And every cameraman doesn't shoot it, but it always works, and Ange always gets it going, like, both in every possible direction. And it's a beautiful shot. Every time you see it, you feel magic. And there's always, and, and, the, and the, the subtle beauty of it is this foreground element. It's always, it'll be, you know, the classic version of it, like Neil said, is this low angle shot. The camera's usually on the ground. And in the foreground is the side judge standing basically right above the camera and the camera's basically between his legs. So he's just part of, it's just part of the scenery of, of an NFL field at that moment. And there's something else I think we, we, we touched on, but Neil, you can explain this as well as anybody. And I think for me, it's triggered by lines like, OJ Simpson, how are you? Or put yourself in this unenviable position. And I'm talking about some of the classics, a cut above the Thomas plan. Tell me about what Andrew's doing the magic he was making when he got back here, actually cutting and writing these stories. A cut above is the 79 Steelers, Steelers highlight. Now, if you were a young, growing up in Pittsburgh in the 80s, you watched that highlight film like I did over and over again. But do you remember the best line in A Cut Above? The line that, every, that NFL films producers have been copying ever since, every time there's a dynasty. There are 27 teams in the National Football League. And then there are the Pittsburgh Steelers. And now that's being used about the Patriots. And then, no, and then there are the Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I don't do a good Facenda, but that was Facenda reading that line written by Bob Angelo in the open of the 1979 Steelers highlight film. Angelo's highlights were always so, like, on the edge. And, like, he took risks and he took chances that nobody else would. He cut a whole, he had a film that was narrated, he did a Saints highlight film and it was narrated by Gumbo the Dog, the Saints-like mascot. <laughs> it looked like the best Saint team ever. But let's ask a longtime observer for his opinion. Well, uh, I've been watching these Saints since they were babies. And you know, funny things seem to happen at these here Saint games. <laughs> uh, but they tell me these young fellas go make a difference around here. Like that Muncie. Uh-oh. Well, anyway, Muncie and that Tony Galbraith, I say, uh, pick up the ball, fellas. Fall on it. Oh, Lordy. Look like it's going to be another aggravating afternoon. My first day in the building, I, I couldn't believe I can walk into the vault and watch any highlight film I want and I'm getting paid to do this. So I grabbed every Seattle Seahawks highlight film, and Ange did like the first four years. 
And so there, the first Seahawks highlight, 1976, there's a two-and-a-half-minute segment on the art of being a wide receiver is shown by Frisbee, do- Frisbee dogs at Seahawks games, including, and the best line is Anxious, and please, you know, the, you do this to be a great receiver, make leaping catches in the air, and when you score a touchdown, always have a dignified end zone celebration. There's this dog just taking a whiz, like right on the goalpost. And it's just, there's always that subtle humor. He did another film where he had Joe Thomas, the GM impresario, the San Francisco 49ers, and the oh, whole yeah. film was built around Joe Thomas trading for O.J. Simpson, who at the time had had multiple knee surgeries and was washed up. And Joe Thomas just leans back in the chair, and there's a squeak of the chair, and he's on the phone. Put the call through, please. O.J. Simpson, how are you? And you still get goosebumps. He did one on the, 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 the Houston Oilers uh, in the mid-1970s. The oil crisis was going on. There was stagflation. There's oil lines <laughs> just, just miles around gas stations. And Ange's highlight film was the oiler crisis when the oilers had a bad year. I mean, they were spectacular. Can I and just, they make you smile and grin, and you just feel warm inside. We do some preparation for this podcast. We didn't exactly prepare for this segment, which is only relevant because we're not reading off notes here. These are like the way you quote Ferris. Bueller's Day Off or other movie lines with your friends. Uh, these are the highlight films that obviously have made an impact. So thank you, Ange, for your work. Uh, what's it like hearing all that, hearing your work quoted back to yourself? A lot of it came out of desperation because I was the new guy on the block, so I got the worst teams. And it's really hard to make an interesting film about a 2-12 and 12 team, and I had to come up with angles that would hold an audience. And so I tried some off-the-wall things, and some of them worked. And some of them bombed completely. But uh, as Steve Sable used to say, nothing I respect more than a colossal failure, because at least you're trying. And, you know, at, uh, that kind of green light as a writer, young writer, editor, and then finally a producer, director, that, uh, that says, go ahead, give it a shot. Why not? There's a line in the Randall film, Iron Sharpens Iron, and they're talking about John practicing against Randall McDaniel. What is it like being a creative in sort of a laboratory of other creatives? How does that challenge you, and, 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 and how does that inspire you? Well, people keep saying to me, you're going to miss NFL Films. And I said, but NFL Films isn't going to miss me. This company is in the hands of really talented people. When I go back and look at some of the dreck that I made in the, in the mid-'70s, and I look at the quality of the productions today, I'm embarrassed by some of the dreck that I used to make. But back then, it was avant-garde. It was, you know, this guy's, as Neil said, I was trying to be edgy because why not? I'm doing a film about a 2-12 and 12 team. Let's make it semi-interesting. If it actually does appear on television in San Diego or Houston, I, I'd like somebody to watch it and remember something. But these days, the work being done here is extraordinary. What's changed the most in the NFL and in the covering of the NFL? All the guys are bigger, faster, stronger, and and more prepared. When I started, guys still had second jobs. My first year was 1975, and quite a few NFL players, you know, couldn't uh, take the seven months of non-football season off or six months, couldn't take it off simply because they didn't make enough money playing football. That's all changed. So obviously the salaries. What's changed about the way we do things, I think, is the attention to detail on the editorial side and more and more sound. People love wirings. That's primary audio. When people hear the game being played, it's sanitized on television. Everybody's big and fast and strong, and their speed cancels the speed of the other guys. But when you're standing there watching it, or when you can hear it, you realize, 
These are grown-ass men going at it. And that's the part when I take someone down on a field for the first time that they realize, A, I never realized these guys were this big, B, and more importantly, that they could move this mass around so quickly. Yeah, it's stunning. It's, it's, um, but the way we bring sound into our productions now, back in the day, a wiring was a big deal. If you had a wiring for your highlight film, wow, you were sitting in it. These days, if you don't have three, you know, what happened to me? What happened to my team? That and the, the ease with which we can edit now. I edit, edited my first highlight using Mylar tape and a viewer and then had to stand in line to get my rough cut on a flatbed and run it back and forth. These days, everything is accessible. Prior seasons are accessible, specials, audio. If I need a radio call from 1998, chances are I can go back and find it. Neil, what percentage of this Randall film, and we talked about it earlier, you, Ange, when you first met John and, and covered him over the years, what percentage of this film do you think uh, Bob had a, had a hand in capturing? Well, the amazing thing when we were going through and editing, every, every shot I went through, I would look at it and say, okay, if it's not a top shot, if, if it's a sound shot, and shot it. If it's, a ground, if it's a ground shot, actually a lot of them and shot because there were a lot of ground sound games. Like and the, every one of John Randall's wires and shot. So I would say uh, this film probably... 85 to 90 percent of the shots in the film, Bob shot. He filmed. He was. He was not. He's. He's not just the storyteller on the film. He's not just the producer, writer, editor. He's not just the camera. He's also a witness to all these things. Like Ange is an eyewitness to John Randall's career. The uh, just to so everybody's clear, a top shot is the shot. Um, the traditional shot you see on TV where the guys are, you're, you're seeing the action from above. A ground shot is the shot from field level. A sound shot is, a, is with a sound camera where you've got a boom mic or, or a player mic'd up. So Ange specialized in sound and wires, uh, especially later in his career. And sound cameras, again, uh, different way of shooting that. But as, you know, as a former player... I try to understand the term momentum. You can feel it on a football field. You know what team has it. And not to be on their sideline when that team has momentum, better have a damn good reason. Is there any story that you didn't get to tell over these 43 years, any individual that you would have liked to do a, a football life on, something that's left out there? Jack Lambert, Pittsburgh Steelers. That's, uh, that's, that's one of our white whales. Lam Jack, uh, Jack used to be on my speed dial. We became pretty good friends. Uh, I heard Jack say things that if we had him wired, he would have been in that category with, with Randall. Now, Jack didn't play crazy like John did. But Jack had his way of motivating that football team, especially the offense when they performed poorly. Jack could light a fire under their A's pretty quickly. And we're talking about a guy who at the end of some football seasons weighed less than Mel Blunt, a cornerback. But Jack could light a fire, even under Joe Green, even under Jack Ham, Jack Lambert. That, that, that's the one that... And, and, and how, when you, you used to go to... When, we, when you would do a shoot with Jack Lambert, what was the requirement that you had to show up with? Michelob. A case of Michelob. Show up with a case of Mick... Jack's happy. And Jack would take us out to his hunting lodge, and we'd sit there and drink Michelob. So you mentioned Jack Lambert. Who's your favorite coach of all time? Wow. Um, 
I tend to gravitate toward the coaches who have given us the, the best access. For that reason, my list is going to have some names on it that some people won't know. Denny Green, Minnesota Vikings. Denny understood what we did and understood its value to a small market team like the Vikings. He wanted us around all the time. Um, I admire Chuck Knoll. actually had some moments with Chuck where, um, you know, I felt like part of the Steeler family. Uh, hard not to like Brian Billick because he was the coach of the Ravens when I did the first Hard Knock show, the very first one back in 2001. And Brian opened the doors. Um, Steve Sable was very concerned about the profanity in show number one. So he deliberately cut it back in show number two. I had to screen the show for ownership, Ozzie Newsom, Brian Billick, the PR department, every Wednesday before the show aired Wednesday night. After that second show, Brian Billick turned to me and said, great show, Bob, but we need a few more gratuitous Fs in there. <laughs> I called Steve and said, and Steve said, okay, that's all I needed to hear. And from that moment on, Hard Knocks became what it was, reality television. We talked for like 20 minutes about Angie's resume. And then, then at the end, it was like, oh, yeah, then the first Hard Knocks. I was the director of the first Hard Knocks. First the, two. The, the first two. Yeah, the, probably the most influential show we've ever made. Well played, Ange. All right, folks. A terrific afternoon, morning, evening, whenever you're listening to this uh, with Neil Zender, and Bob Angelo, and John Randall. Um, Paul? Any final thoughts? Let's cue the song, Keith. Hold on, hold on. Neil, Ange, anything else? Just a real honor to get to work with Ange. Many, many times, but this time was a lot of fun. Yeah. Ange, thank you uh, for everything you've done. It's been an incredible privilege to work with you and get to know you. Thank you very much, guys. Cue it! We want to thank Pro Football Hall of Famer John Randall for joining us today on the podcast, talking about his film. Thanks, Rich Owens, our producer, Steve Mosley, our engineer. Thanks, Neil Zender and Bob Angelo. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Check us out on YouTube. From the home of America's football movies in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, this has been the NFL Films Podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Keith. Take care, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>